I don't know that I have ever shared the, the story of the War of the Moles at 140 South Dogwood before. Back in somewhere around 2010, we had a mole problem in our yard. Uh, all of the neighbors had dogs, we did not. And uh, the moles seemed to just like our yard, and so they would make their way into our yard and were making quite the mess. I tried all sorts of warfare to begin with. I went and bought one of those real cool, like, stabby traps that's supposed to get them when they walk through the corridor and stick them. Didn't work. Uh, somebody told me that you could, that they love juicy fruit gum. So I went and bought a bunch of juicy fruit gum and I stuck it down in those holes. That didn't seem to work either. Uh, the thing that, that eventually worked at least somewhat was I, I, I learned that they like to come out in the mornings and uh, that's when they're really rooting for the grubs and they like to come out in the evenings. They're not out during the, 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 the sun of the day. And so I would get out there early in the mornings and I would take my water hose and I would shove it down into one of their tunnels and I'd crank that thing on and you could, you could see the water kind of moving through the yard. That's how on the surface they were. But instead of going down to kind of burrow into their deeper holes or nests or whatever you call it, those things are gross. Uh, they, would, they would start coming to the surface trying to escape the water and I would watch for them and I would have my shovel ready and I would just start stab, 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 stabbing until the mole was in a few different pieces. And so I, I killed probably six uh, doing that. It took a lot of work. It did not resolve our problem in the end, uh, but it was a little bit of fun. That's about as close to war as I've ever become. Um, so why are we talking about that? Well, because as we, as we transition from chapter 9, chapters really 8 and 9, where Paul has been offering instruction on giving to the Corinthians. Remember, they were raising the funds for the suffering saints who were there in Jerusalem. Uh, we're, we're transitioning now where he is taking aim again at the false teachers who have infiltrated the church at Corinth. And we can put it this way, he's going to war with the false teachers who have been perverting the gospel and leading people astray in Corinth. Throughout the letter, Paul has referenced them, and now as we enter really the home stretch of this letter, everybody can kind of maybe applaud to that, the home stretch of the letter, chapters 10 through 13, Paul once again takes aim at them, and as long as they remain in the church, here's what Paul understands, the gospel will continue to be perverted. God's people will continue to be confused and led astray, and the glory of God is certainly at stake. And so today we begin with Paul's appeal in chapter 10 in the first couple verses here. Paul emphasizes the, the personal nature of the appeal. Notice how he words that, I, Paul, myself. He adds in this extra pronoun to drive home the emphasis. Additionally, he assures the Corinthians of his meekness, and his gentleness, actually writing this, is appeal, he's appealing by the meekness and the gentleness of who? Of Christ. I'm appealing to you by his meekness and his gentleness. Well, why is that significant? Well, if you notice, in, in some of your translations, you've got a couple dashes there in verse 1. Some of you may actually have parentheses because there's a, there's a parenthetical statement that's made here. Here's the parenthetical statement. I who am humble, or you could word it this way, I who lack confidence when face to face with you, but am bold towards you when I am away. 
Why is that in parentheses? Why is that in dashes? Because that's what the false teachers are saying about Paul. He's just reiterating what they've been saying, that, that Paul is really weak when he's face-to-face with you, but when he's writing a letter, he is, he is bold in his nature. If you go down to verse 10, it says this, very similar. For they say his letters are weighty and they're strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So, so they consider Paul a, a weakling, a, a wimp, afraid. He's a, he's a bit of a weenie. He may be what we would call today, at least this is what they're considering, like a keyboard warrior, right? Somebody who can, who can eviscerate somebody online, but if you were face-to-face with them, there's no way they would ever say the things that they're saying. We'll come back to this in a moment, but the false teachers, they view this meekness and this gentleness. They view Paul's nature as weakness. They actually say that it's, it's fleshly. And here Paul reminds them of this. Wait, Jesus is meek. Jesus said of himself, I'm meek. I am, I am gentle. And Paul, by his, his union with Jesus, the fact that Christ lives in him, and that's what he points out when he says, I'm meek and I'm gentle by Christ. And so he's jabbing at them, arguing back against them. If you're going to call me weak for being gentle and meek, you're calling Christ weak for being gentle and weak. You're calling Christ fleshly. Let me pause here for a moment. Some of us could stand to be more meek and gentle. Some some of us are abrasive, we're rude, we're rough, we're severe, we're critical, we're impatient. We need to be more lenient, long-suffering, forgiving, forbearing with others. But what we say is, well, well, that's just not my personality. You know, my personality is not to be meek and gentle or, or you don't understand. It's just kind of the way I was brought up. It's just the way it is. But the thing is, in Christ or by Christ, you can be meek and gentle. Why? Because it's his personality. And he desires to live through you. He desires to show his character through you. Truthfully, as I think about Paul and I think, a lot of us probably think this before Jesus. I, I kind of, he was probably quite a jerk. Like, I just imagine him being very abrasive, very argumentative, uh, prideful. I think that's probably what made him so good at what he was doing prior to coming to Christ and in engaging Christians and throwing them into prison. But what happened? Christ changed his life completely, he became a new man. Now, in verse 2, we get to the actual appeal that Paul is making. Paul desires that the false teachers would repent of their sin and that the Corinthians would repent of letting them stay in the church. And so he's called them already in the letter and now reiterating he's calling them to repentance. Takes us back to those previous chapters. But here Paul offers a bit of a veiled threat uh, that if, if you have not repented by the time that I show up, I'm going to prove the false teachers who think I'm, I'm weak in presence, oh, I'm going to prove them wrong. 
because I'm coming with boldness. He says, confident boldness. And so in other words, you better have your house in order by the time I show up or you can expect some bold and holy wrath. Have you ever said that to your kids or maybe your spouse? If this mess is not cleaned up by the time I get home, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be painful, right? That's Paul's attitude towards them. Now, let me get back to to what the false teachers were saying about Paul. Here at the end of verse 2, here's what he writes. You can see it in your text, that he will show bold confidence against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. The false teachers, again, were accusing him of walking according to the flesh. Paul would say, no, 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 no. You're the ones who are in the flesh, and so what gives here? Well, if you remember back nearly a year ago when we actually started into 2 Corinthians, those opening chapters, we learned that the false teachers, they viewed Paul's suffering as a sign that he was not of the Spirit. That They viewed the fact that he endured so many great afflictions as a sign that he was in the flesh. His suffering to them was evidence of that. If that sounds familiar, that false teaching still exists today, doesn't it? You can go to certain churches and certain groups and they're going to tell you that if you suffer or if you're poor, then you're out of the will of God and you need to fix something in your life. False teachers had an inverted value system. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, Paul's unimpressive persona, his lack of rhetorical skill, his meek and humble demeanor, his poverty, his working with his hands, the absence of ecstatic experience and vision, his incessant trials and difficulties rather than what they would consider success, they were to his opponents incontrovertible evidence that his ministry was of the flesh and not of the Spirit. They had an inverted view of values. Well, let me just briefly say at this point, suffering, poverty, weakness are a promised part of following Jesus. And that's not something I say, that's not just something Paul says, that's something Jesus said. Jesus was very upfront with us that if you follow me, it will be difficult. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross daily and follow me. That there's a death that must happen in us daily. Well, let's move on to Paul's war. Which, by the way, is our war. It's our fight, too. As we move into verse 3, Paul admits that he walks in the flesh. Meaning this, I'm a human being. I walk in the flesh because I I am in flesh, but he does not wage war, he says, according to the flesh. And so you see this pushback, right? They are accusing him of walking according to the flesh, and he counters with a big, no, sir, that's not the way in which it works. But in doing so, he introduces a new theme, a theme that, that Paul likes to come to quite often, the theme of war, spiritual war. Not a fleshly war, but a spiritual war. He introduces this metaphor to describe for us the Christian life, and in the coming verses, he's, he's going to describe for us this war against the false teachers and false doctrine. But what's he fighting for? Well, he's fighting for the hearts of the Corinthians. He's fighting for the Lord Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't be led astray by false teachers. He's fighting for the glory of God. It should be evident to all of us who have been able to be here through, through each of these sermons and move through this letter. Paul loves the Corinthians. At certain points, we've scratched our head and said, why? It's that same question we ask, why would, why would God love me? Paul loved the Corinthians. 
His warfare, his weapons, his, his strength, he says, they're not of the flesh, but they're of divine power. Notice again verse 4. The weapons of our warfare, they are not of the flesh, but they have divine power that can destroy strongholds. False teachers' weapons, what were they? A lofty speech. Grandiose rhetoric. Maybe wealth. Privilege. They had a platform. Emotional, spiritual manipulation. Could have been some entertainment-driven things that were going on for them. Drawing the people in. Those are the weapons of the flesh. They're limited. They're weak. They're temporal. They're human. Still today, those are the weapons that many ministries employ. Paul's weapons and ours are of divine power. I don't think we really understand what that means. And I don't know that we ever will. But this takes us back to 1 Corinthians. You can turn there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want you to see as Paul just shares with us his engagement in this divine warfare, the weapons that are at his disposal compared to the fleshly weapons that false teachers would use. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul's describing when he showed up in Corinth, and here's what he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and with fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Incredible. Paul says, I, I didn't want to confuse you in any way to think that you were somehow manipulated into the family of God. I wanted it to be evident, clear, that it was divine power that brought you to Christ. And so what are these powerful divine weapons? I think namely it's this, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of His life and death and resurrection and that there is a Redeemer. There's one who can reconcile and rescue us. But I think it's within our, our limits to broaden that to even understand the whole of Scripture. Because the whole of Scripture is really the story of the good news. It's the truth of God that is the power. It is the weapon. That's why Paul would write, to the Ephesians, that, that this, this word is the sword of the Spirit. It's the weapon that we use. I think secondary weapons are maybe part of the training process. We could even bring in the encouragement of godly people. We could bring in the church as a, as a divine weapon. Why? Because if you're doing that right, and if you're in relationships right, and if you're in a, a church that's healthy, what are they feeding you? The truth of God's Word. 
And so powerful are these spiritual weapons that they destroy strongholds, he says. What are we supposed to think there? We're supposed to think of well-fortified cities with, with, with high walls. We're supposed to think of a, a military base that seems impenetrable. God's truth can break through even those things. Paul goes on to outline a threefold, threefold war strategy. First, he says this, we destroy or we tear down both arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. To tear them down carries the idea of dismantling the wrong thinking and the wrong believing that stand in opposition to Christian truth. We're dismantling those things. First, consider the arguments. He says this is what we first dismantle. They have to be destroyed. This would be the reasoning. This is the logic of, of false teachers. But destroying reasoning and logic, that is not enough. Notice what he says. Secondly, we find this picture of, of walls that are standing in opposition to God. I like the language of the King James here. It says, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Everything that lifts itself up in opposition to the truth of who God is. These are wrong thoughts. These are wrong beliefs about God. It's the idolatry that must be brought down, not just for the sake of, of people, but for the glory of God Himself. These are the things that stand in opposition to Him. My mind initially went as I thought of the picture here to Jericho. As the children of Israel would cross there on the other side of the Jordan stood the city of Jericho. Impenetrable. Its walls were high. I'm certain that many had tried before. It was the entryway into the land of Canaan. But by God's divine power, right? They came down. All the children of Israel did was walk and scream and blow some trumpets. But I think a better picture as I thought about it more was the story of Gideon. If you remember Gideon, Gideon is in the book of Judges, the book after Joshua. And he's hiding in the wine press. He's afraid of the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, hey, you're going to be the next leader of Israel but the first thing you need to do, Gideon, is you need to get two of your dad's oxen. And tonight I want you to take those oxen, I want you to take them, and I want you to tie them to the altar of Baal that's in front of your dad's house. And I want you to pull it down. And then I want you to mow down all those trees that are there to Asherah where all of the immorality takes place at the altar of Baal and in those groves to Asherah. And that's exactly what he does. Did the people like it? They did not. It's where we have an inkling of respect for Gideon's dad because they say, Joash, he needs to die for what he did. Joash says, let Baal fight for himself if he's real. What happened there? Strongholds fell. Idols came crumbling down. Second, we're supposed to take every thought captive 
so that we might and so that thought might obey Christ. If, if stage one is to destroy the walls, stage two is to capture the soldiers. We must take erroneous and untrue thoughts as prisoners of war. Truly our mind is a spiritual battlefield, isn't it? The thoughts often run freely, don't they? Thoughts of fear. Thoughts of worry and anxiety. Thoughts of anger and hatred. Thoughts of doubt, rebellion, pride. We have to capture those thoughts. We have to transform and renew them to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to Him who is the truth Himself. And it's not enough for us to just, uh, by our actions, try to make corrections. We have to change the way that we think. We have to take those erroneous thoughts captive and transform them into obedience through Christ. Let me give you an example of this. How does this work? Well, just use what Paul has set this up with, the false teachers. What are they saying? What, what, what is the stronghold that they've built up against the true knowledge of God? It's that suffering is wrong. That suffering is somehow sinful. It's of the flesh. And that, that wealth and prosperity is over here and it's of the Spirit. Well, that's not a true vision of what is right. That's a stronghold that stands in opposition to God. How do we do that? How do we change that? Paul's saying you've got to take captive those thoughts and you, you take them and say, does that match what Scripture says? Does that match what Jesus Himself said? And the answer is no. Then take those thoughts captive, transform them into what is true, into true obedience to Jesus. Change the way you're thinking. Third, we punish the disobedient. Those who stand against God in truth must be prosecuted. In the context, Paul of Paul's warning, he, he adds this phrase, if you notice there, when your obedience is complete. In other words, within this metaphor that Paul's throwing out, or Paul's saying that the false teachers must be punished. They must be disciplined and removed from the church. And until you Corinthians do this, the work is not complete. The work is not done. We know from plenty of places in Scripture, it is not our job to enact vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We're not to be about the business of revenge. But we are under many circumstances called to point out what is wrong and to speak what is true. Even in society, we're called, even with that glorious gospel, to continue to preach it even though it excludes many others. We do not believe that if you follow Hinduism, you'll eventually get to God. Or if you follow the path of Buddhism, that you'll eventually get to Yahweh. We do not. We believe this. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All of the other paths are about your works, your performance, Jesus says, I did it. It's finished. 
It was finished on the cross. People don't want to hear that. That's an exclusive message. But we must speak what is true. But the certain context of this statement is for the church. If someone in the life of the church is not living under the lordship of Jesus, we're required to remove them from fellowship, discipline. This is what Paul's instruction is regarding the false teachers. So that's his warfare strategy. As we move into verse 7, Paul begins a long series of arguments. He's defending his ministry. He's calling out the false teachers or false apostles. And it leads to some very beautiful, powerful passages that deal with even Paul's own suffering in life. But I want to consider a few implications of this opening section first. Number one, I would ask this question. What is your value system? The false teachers had an inverted value system, didn't they? They thought it was all about the things of this world. Is your value system of the flesh or is your value system of the spirit? Do you, like the false teachers, place greater value on the things of this world? Talents, power, titles, hobbies, popularity, looks, money. Possessions, comfort. I have to confess to you that I often want those values. Those are the things that drive my heart. I see the fruit of it in the sin that I, I, I spew out of me when I don't get what I want. Because my values are inverted. False teachers and their erroneous teaching are central to today's text. The Corinthian false teachers were leading others away from the gospel, away from truth. They were leading them away from Paul. Now, I tried to think through this as best I could, that, that I am aware of. We don't have any bad theology going on in our fellowship right now. It's something that, that I and the elders and hopefully even you are constantly on the lookout for. We want to remain sound doctrinally. But there's always temptation. And there's always the opportunity for drift. I highlighted just a few areas that I think churches like ours can, can drift towards or be tempted to move towards. One would be the temptation towards legalism. Many of us feel the cry of legalism every day, don't we? Earn your way. Work your way to God. Be better. Do better so God can be happy with you and bless you. Friends, it's not how it works. That, that legalism is a constant pull. The whole letter of Galatians is, is because of legalism. It's a problem, it has been a problem, it will continue to be a problem, and we must always be on the lookout for it in our own church. But then there's those who want to swing that pendulum to the other side and say, I'm not going to be a legalist, it's all about liberty. It's all about me and my rights and my freedoms, and then what happens? Paul warns about liberty and says, you're offending others by your liberty. And though you may have the right in your own being to do those things, and you're free to do those things, 
You're offending others. You're causing weaker brothers to stumble. And we have to be careful to find a balance. Some of the language that we often use around here that we're constantly on the lookout is being trellis-focused. So focused on ministries that we forget about discipleship. So focused on a building that we forget about the people that the building is for, the community that the building is for. It's easy for us to get our focus off on the wrong things. We become self-sufficient. I think we've been here multiple times as a church. We become self-sufficient. We've got enough money. We've got enough talent. We can get by. What's the first thing to go when we become self-sufficient? Genuine prayer. We don't pray. We're not dependent upon God. We don't, we don't believe Jesus when he says, without me, you can do nothing. Oh, I can do plenty without you, Jesus. Just watch. Comfort. I think this falls in line here. This place is full, isn't it? Most Sundays, we make enough money. We can pay the bills. We got ministries where we're out of classroom space a lot of times. Why don't we just chill out a little bit? Take a break. Stop sharing the gospel with people. Stop trying to help people. I mean, we don't have room for them anyway. We fall into this comfort mode as a church. It's not what we're called to. Selfishness. Oh, it's always there. I want what I want. You do it my way or I'm out of here. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Philippians 2 addresses it so clearly. It's not your interest. It's the interest of others that we're to prefer. Following the example of our Savior Jesus. I want to throw one more in here that I've, just, I've noted and I, I think this is a, a, a larger cultural thing. I think it's just invaded into the church. A spirit of just hatefulness. That we have the right to be rude to people we disagree with. That we can be keyboard warriors and say whatever we want to say, even though it's hurtful and demeaning and painful. There's enough truth in it that I can get away with it. That's not gentle. That's not meek. It's not what Jesus is. It's not what Paul sets as an example for us. Let's be vigilant to watch for false teaching and hearts of unbelief in our own fellowship. The, the author of Hebrews warns against it. Look out, watch for each other, lest you be pulled away with an unbelieving heart and fall away from the living God. One more point. I want us to consider this passage in two areas of life. First area, the strongholds that exist in our culture. And the second area, the strongholds that exist in our own hearts, our own idolatry. So let's talk about cultural strongholds. There's a, there's a growing number of lofty opinions that are being raised against the knowledge of God. People saying, no, no, that's not right. I've got a better way. Or there's a better truth. Sexual immorality is one of these. The world many decades ago with the sexual revolution decided we don't need to do this thing God's way anymore. And they've built a stronghold, haven't they? The truth of God's Word is that any sex apart from marriage is immoral. It's sinful. It's wrong. 
That includes homosexuality. It includes many things. It's a stronghold that's been raised up. And we have to help people as we dismantle those things with the truth of God's word to renew their minds, take their thoughts captive. We've moved beyond that to the area of transgenderism that works to destroy the very image of God itself. The constructs of male and female, they don't matter anymore. Well, not according to God's word, they matter a great deal. Man and woman were created in the image of God and that's not fluid. He's created us to be what He's created us to be. I started hearing about transgenderism a little over a decade ago and I thought, oh, that's never going to gain traction. Boy, was I wrong. Because we're probably not too far, and certainly if we were in other states, where what I'm saying even behind a pulpit and the protection that exists on religions would be considered hate speech. A stronghold. I'm a lover of science, but scientific theory and many scientists just simply work to discredit and try to disprove the truths of God. Pragmatism. This is a stronghold that preaches this message that the end justifies the means. Oh, it's been around a long time. You, you can do whatever you want to do. You can say whatever you want to say as long as it produces the results that you want to be in the end. Churches have fallen prey to this, that, that we'll do whatever we have to do to bring people in. Because the end of the matter of bringing people in justifies the means of how we do that. We see this all over our culture. Politics is numero uno on this one. You want to get that bill passed, you do whatever you have to do. Friends, Friends, let me tell you this. Jesus is more concerned with the means than he is the end. He's in control of the end. We don't control that. He's more concerned with how we do what we do. Are we doing it in obedience to Christ? Are we doing it from the Spirit at work in us? The stronghold of the media and the lies that exist some of you are like, yeah, I'm not just talking about lack of journalistic integrity here. I'm talking about just the lies of social media, the curation that we all can face. We take 15 pictures of ourselves and we pick the best one to put out there. We don't take a picture of our nasty grilled cheese sandwich and put it out there. We take a picture of the, the curated meal and we put it out there as if this is our life. We create these falsehoods and, and we're seeing statistically and then in real, in real family situations that many of us deal with, we're seeing the serious results of that. Massive rates of depression and suicide because of this stronghold that's been raised. This list could go on and on and on. But let's pick on ourselves for a little bit. Not just the strongholds that exist outside that stand in opposition to God and what's true, but what about the strongholds that, that are created in our own being? What about the idolatry, 
the strongholds of sin in our own life, the idols that we construct and then we, we bow down to and we give our homage to and we let those things control us, idols like comfort. Oh man, I like to be comfortable. And if you mess with my comfort, the idol of control, I want to call the shots. I don't want God to be in control. I want to be in control. My plans are better. And that idol begins to control us. What happens when we lose control? We get angry. We are overwhelmed with anxiety. That's the fruit that we see when there's a stronghold in our life. Stronghold of fear. Many of us are plagued with this one. It's not the sovereign Lord Jesus who sits on the throne in our hearts, the one who's in control and, and, and we can trust Him because He's proven, He's trustworthy. It's fear that controls us. What's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen with my job? What if I'm in a car wreck on the way home and we're plagued by it? Strongholds take control. The stronghold of image. I have to look a certain way. I have to present myself a certain way. The strongholds of achievement. I have to do certain things. People have to respect me. And so, so I've got to finish this and I've got, to, I've got to meet this next criteria, this next level. Strongholds of anger and resentment. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, Paul's weapons destroy the way people think. They demolish their sinful thought patterns. The mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. In Paul's own words, his spiritual weapons tear down every high thing lifted up against the knowledge of God. Paul is referencing the citadels, D.A. Carson writes, the citadels of sin in our own lives. Paul says we got to bring them down. All of these high things and haughty thoughts, every action that forms a barrier to the knowledge of the true and the living God. Friends, we must wage war. Not with water hoses and shovels, but using the divine tools given to us. We have to dismantle bad theology. We have to take captive wrong thoughts. How do we do this? We, we do it by opening up God's Word and, and praying that the Spirit would unleash divine power in us to tear the strongholds down, to take captive those thoughts in our personal lives, in our families, in our church, in our neighborhood, our community, and in the world. This book, I love it and I grow to love it more and more. It's not magical. It's not a book that's full of incantations that we go to and we say them and life becomes better. It's not some trinket that we carry around. It's a living book. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing asunder of soul, spirit, joint, and marrow. And it discerns the thoughts, the intents, 
the strongholds of our hearts. Jeremiah says, oh man, it's like a fire that consumes. It's like a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. What makes it so significant? It's this, it's truth. It's because it's a book that's full of what is true and what is right in a world that's so full of lies and hearts that so easily are consumed by those lies. It's the truth about our God, who He is, what He's like, what He's done for us. It's the truth of our purpose, what we were created to be. It's the truth of how God has designed life to be. It's the truth that because of our failures, God sent His Son to redeem us and to rescue us. It's the truth that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can grow into Christ's likeness. It's the truth that Jesus is coming back to finish what He started. Let the truth set you free from the strongholds. Immerse yourself in it. Delight in it. Don't be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you'll know what is the perfect and good, the acceptable will of God in your life. Let God's Word transform you rather than being conformed. This week, I just want to challenge you with this. and This may be something you can roll into your small groups this week, but take some time to read through Psalm 119. It's a doozy, I'll tell you. But every verse is about what? The glorious Word of God. Let it challenge you. Let it remind you of the purposes of God's Word. It's, it's necessity in our lives. Matter of you, we have to prepare for war against these strongholds, equipping ourselves with the truth of God's Word, and then pray Pray, pray, and pray some more. Let's do that now. I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads with me. I want to just ask a couple of questions. I'm going to invite you to pray. If you need to pray with somebody, you can come right over here to my right to the prayer room. We've got folks that are more than willing to, to pray with you, help you think through maybe some strongholds that are in your life. But before we go to prayer and I give you that opportunity, are your values out of order? Maybe you're here today and you have done nothing in your life but value the things of the world and you're realizing, I've lived my life upside down. I need Christ. I need Christ to be that thing of greatest value. And today I'm going to sell everything I have so that I can buy the field that contains them. I'm going to sell everything that I have so I can have that pearl of greatest price. He's of greater value. And if that's you today, please, please, please let us help you think through that. Let us answer questions that you may have. You can come and you can pray in the room to my right. If you're here today and you're you're battling strongholds in your own heart. You're battling strongholds in your family, in your culture, maybe your workplace, and you just need strength. You need encouraged. If you want to pray with somebody, we would love to pray with you. Maybe that prayer is just something you pray right there in your pew or grab somebody who's next to you. 
I want you to pray for those things. And I'm going to give us some time to do that right now. And so in this silence, do what you need to do. I'll close us in prayer as we transition into communion in just a moment. Father, we thank you for the truth that sets us free. We're thankful that because of Jesus, sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. God, help us to to take the thoughts captive that stand in opposition to our Savior Jesus. Help us to go to war every day for our own minds, for the minds of others, our children, our spouses, our friends, our church family with the truth of God's Word. Thank you for time to consider it today. Thank you for the courage that's been to my own heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.